Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. When I first started this podcast, which wasn't all that long ago, just a month ago, I think, uh, I didn't expect it to be quite so on the nose quite so soon. I was thinking mostly about the rise in nationalism and fascism and the rise in global temperatures. I wasn't thinking specifically about pandemic, and that's maybe a, a blind spot on my part. I spent maybe five or six hours this week writing what I was calling Everyone's a Prepper Now, Your Guide to Leftist, Anarchist, Progressive, etc. Prepping. I don't, okay, well, I, the subtitle could use some work, but I spent about five or six hours writing that this week, and then I realized in a lot of ways I was replicating work that's already been done. I want to recommend that there are actually resources out there for people interested in prepping, like gear lists and things like that. Um, I'll probably still do an episode covering a lot of the basics, but I want to encourage everyone to go listen to a podcast that already exists that came out a couple days ago. Robert Evans, who did the podcast, It Could Happen Here, that covers the possibility of a second American civil war. He put together uh, the Reasonable Person's Guide to Prepping and podcasted it on a podcast that he's co-host of called Worst Year Ever. It came out about, well, three days ago as I record, as I record this. I'm not quite sure when this will go up, so it might be last week by this point. One of the things, though, that I do want to talk about before we get into this week's interview is I want to talk about why prepping can be a pro-social behavior instead of an anti-social behavior. I spend a lot of my time trying to bust the myth of the sort of bunker mentality or what I call the nationalist approach to prepping, the the anti-social approach, the I've got mine, fuck you approach. That's not what prepping is for in any reasonable sense. Like even from a selfish point of view, creating communities of mutual aid is a far better survival strategy than holding up in a bunker with you and your few friends, which is really funny right now, of course, because this current crisis does have so many of us self-isolating, but we're also learning how we can self-isolate in a community way. And so prepping has never felt so important. Um, By having prepped a little bit, one of the things that I got to do is that I got to not be a part of the runs on the grocery store. I didn't have to panic buy anything because I had more or less all of my immediate needs available to me already. Already having a few masks, a box of gloves. I mean, I remember the moment a week or two ago when you already couldn't get hand sanitizer in stores when I found the supply of it that I bought three years ago when it was a dollar a bottle just because I was like, well, it's a dollar a bottle and I should probably have this around. And so finding three small bottles of it three years later has been a huge help for my own mental health. Personally, the thing I'm struggling with the most right now is my own mental health, my own, uh, I tend to have an anxiety disorder, specifically around medical stuff. And so this is, of course, a a particularly trying time. This podcast, of course, is also going to be somewhat interrupted by the fact that I live off grid with limited electricity and limited internet, and I'm working on fixing both of those problems. Um, But for now, it it might be a little bit complicated and I'm sorry, and please bear with me. So another thing to remember about prepping, 
so that you're not, if you're suddenly a prepper, right, that's great. But don't go prep the things that are currently in demand by everyone. Panic buying and hoarding are actually antisocial behaviors. If you go to the store when they get new hand sanitizer in and buy all of it, you're a piece of shit. There are people who need it more than you. The goal is to prep for the next emergency. The goal is to be ready for what might come either as a result of this current crisis or might be a totally unrelated crisis that comes down the line. So think about other crises now and think about what you can do to prepare for them. Personally, I'm focusing, since a lot of shelter-in-place items are incredibly hard to get right now, and I don't want to reward price gouging, so I'm not going out and buying more water storage. Um, Unfortunately, that's all been price gouged very badly. You know, uh, buckets of dried food are, are harder to come by right now. Masks and glove and sanitization, of course, are practically impossible and should honestly be left to medical professionals as much as possible. But so I'm working on my instead of my shelter in place supplies, I'm working on my to go supplies. I'm I've already had a to go bag for a long time, but I recommend getting a to go bag and figuring out what you might want in it that in case the next disaster is not shelter in place, in case the next disaster is, is get out or go to a refugee center or go somewhere where resources might be limited. And there are much better guides available than I'm going to do right now in the introduction of this podcast, which is already getting too long. But some of the things that you might want, you might want a small sleeping bag, you might want a headlamp, you might want a first aid kit, you might want emergency blankets instead of a sleeping bag, depending on the size of your bag. Emergency blankets saved my life when I was, I think it was my 13th birthday when I was getting hypothermia while camping. Um, So I I swear by them. I've never had to use one again, but I keep them in a lot of places. Tarps, poncho, portable battery pack for your cell phone. Your cell phone is actually one of the most important survival tools that you have available to you. And from that point of view, you might want to get good apps on your phone, like hiking GPS apps or download a lot of eBooks about survival, first aid, that kind of thing. The best fire source that anyone has ever come up with is the Bic lighter. Bic lighters are super cheap and I've never seen one fail, let alone two. So keep two Bic lighters in anywhere you need and you have access to fire rather than all the like trinkets. One of the main things I would also say is like no gizmos. Like a lot of the a million and one survival tool things are junk. Uh, that said, a multi-tool is a really useful thing, like a little, you know, a Gerber or a Leatherman or whatever. And water purification. This is not an exhaustive list. Please look up exhaustive lists. But I just want to kind of put this in people's minds to be thinking about. You can get a lot of this stuff cheaply. You can keep it in a backpack somewhere. And then it's a... One of the other main advantages of prepping is the peace of mind. Uh, I said that you know, I suffer from anxiety, but the main solution to anxiety is agency. And knowing that I have some amounts of agency in almost any given situation does a lot for my anxiety. Okay. The other cure for anxiety is uh, therapy and specifically cognitive behavioral therapy or other different, you know, therapy models that rewire your brain, but also agency and being prepared. 
So this week's episode, I'm really excited about. I was going to put it out last week, but I had another COVID thing to put out. This week's episode is with someone named Paul, who just came back from the the region of northern Syria that we tend to call Rojava, although early in the interview, Paul's going to talk about why that's not the most accurate name for that autonomous region. And I'm excited about this because at first I was like, oh, it's not as important right now. It's, what matters is this pandemic. But then what I realized is that it's all about organizational models. Surviving crisis and thriving and making this world better instead of worse is all about organizational models. It's all about when the organizational model that you live under, capitalism or the state or et cetera, when it fails, stepping in with a better one. And that's what people have done. That's what millions of people have done in northern Syria, where faced with the failure of the state they lived in, they created an imperfect but a work in progress autonomous region that defends itself. And I think that's one of the most important lessons for anyone right now. So here's an interview with Paul about about that. There's a lot of really useful information in here. Paul was a medic in a combat situation and talks a lot about like the efficacy of tourniquets and things like that, as well as giving all kinds of information about what's going on in the autonomous region of northern Syria. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, if you want to introduce yourself with whatever name or lack of name you feel like using uh, your pronouns and maybe a little bit about um, your affiliations, whether political or, uh, or otherwise. For the purposes of this interview, um, I'll call myself uh, Paul. Mm -hmm. um, I use he, him, his pronouns. I'm from the Southeast so-called United States. Until recently, I was uh, spending my time in northern eastern Syria that perhaps some people in the audience will be uh, familiar with being called Rojava. Um, <clears throat> politically, I consider myself an anarchist. Any subtext to that or um, prefixes or like suffixes, um, I feel much less clear on now than I think I did before <laughs> I left. Mm -hmm. uh, and as far as uh, other political affiliations, um, no organizations that I like feel necessary to disclose other than just feeling accountable to um, the community of anti-authoritarians, abolitionists, and anarchists uh, in the Southeast. So you say northeast syria that um is called roshava is it called roshava there also y yes and no i um this is perhaps something that we could speak on and touch on very briefly mm -hmm. um that uh when the revolution started the revolution of roshava um it was called that because it was specifically like much of a kurdish movement and i was all part of the fight against ISIS or Daesh. And of course, things have changed, things have progressed. And as the society has become like more actually pluralist rather than just aspirationally pluralist, and is including anyone from Assyrians um, to people that are ethnically Arabic to Yazidis, um, there's generally a council um, that is sort of in the autonomous region that collectively decided on, you know, maybe let's not call it Rojava because that's a, a Kurdish specific name and it doesn't necessarily reflect the diverse 
ethnic makeup of what the region is now. Okay. So, is there a name that people are using now or hasn't been decided yet? Yeah, I mean, the Autonomous Administration of Northern East Syria is, you know, what people are kind of calling these days, calling it these days. That's like the very, like, politically, not politically correct, but like more like correct thing to call it because I wouldn't say like people say get offended, but the only people that I think are going to just really accept it being called Rojava all the time are like, Kurdish people, which, like, of course, makes up a lot of people in that area, but is not entirely representative. Okay. Would you be able to do a, a brief introduction to what's been going on in that autonomous region, like kind of the history and uh, up to the present? Like a, a bird's eye view version for people who are maybe not familiar or very passingly familiar? Yeah. So I, I think if we can uh, really, really zoom out, um, essentially the the Kurdish movement uh, with through the ideological um, bent of Apoism, meaning uh, the philosophy of the Kurdish leader, Abdullah Öcalan, um, <clears throat> has been a, a movement that's been developing in Kurdistan and the different parts of Kurdistan um, for the past 40 years. And mm, this has manifested in many ways, but in one of the ways it manifested was more recently as a response to sort of the vacuum that was opened up by um, the chaos of the war against Daesh um, was able to respond and provide for the people's self-defense of the Kurdish people, but also, you know, other ethnic groups, specifically Yazidis that were under direct attack by um, Daesh um, during that war. Um, and of course, like this all manifested in a lot of ways, but became like really notable to the Western world um, during the struggle for Kobani uh, when it was the, People's Protection Units, the YPG, and uh, the Women's Protection Units, the YPJ, that were able to kind of be the first people to stand up and stop um, the expansion of uh, the caliphate of the so-called Islamic State. Um, so since then, it's sort of been a struggle where those militias have been expanding and uh, while creating sort of a self-defense for the region that we just described, northern eastern Syria, a society has been able to spring up um, as areas are were reclaimed from Daesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and this society was able to uh, follow in some places more loosely, in some places more directly, the philosophy of democratic confederalism, um, which is Abdel Ojalan's philosophy after sort of he had a change in mindset regarding politics uh, and this change in mindset and this new philosophy about um, democratic nation um, and this whole idea uh, was quite derived from anarchist thought, um, specifically Murray Bookchin and uh, Bakunin and a lot of um, sort of Western anarchist thinkers that are uh, somehow not quite as in vogue in the West right now for a variety of reasons I think are important, but that Abdel Ojalan and a lot of other um, Kurdish thinkers felt that uh, these ideas kind of contained some things that could be interesting to experiment with for like the self-administrative self-administration of this autonomous region so and like just to quickly define terms i'm using terms like democracy and nation and these are not the same ways that we use these terms in so-called america um you know democracy represents like a kind of a different idea um that is much more in line with i think what people would recognize as like you know, municipal anarchism or, or this kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. It's just words that are people are choosing to use within the Kurdish movement, um, but have nothing to do with sort of 
American notions of democracy. And when they say nation, um, it's also advocating for this idea of uh, a place for um, ethnic peoples to uh, sort of people of a certain ethnic identity to self-determine how they're going to exist and uh, do so without the framework of a state. Okay. Um, So yeah, a nation, but no state. And this is like a completely separate thing. I, I think a lot of like anarchists, when they hear people coming back from northeastern Syria and talking about democracy and democratic nation, they're like, oh, like, what, what happened? This is very, this is not uh, what I expected, but it's, uh, yeah, just, I think, different wording. But so this society has uh, uh, been kind of existing and developing. Um, one of the most, like, I think, important or like salient notions of this is the idea of women's liberation Mm -hmm. that uh from sort of our perspective in the west this would um this kind of women's liberation would look rather like gender essentialist in some ways because um in the social context of that particular region um questions of um, trans rights and queer liberation are only just starting to be discussed so it's sort of in a little bit of a different period actually much of a different period of development from where like our um, ideas of feminism and uh, women's liberation, queer liberation, trans liberation are in the West. But um, nevertheless, like the idea of women's autonomy as represented by the Kurdish movement and the Kurdish struggle has been able to, you know, gain a lot of traction and gain a lot of like, autonomy for uh, women in spaces where, you know, the life of a woman was rather brutal mm-hmm. and quite desolate, um, not just under, but under a lot of other administrations in the region, you know, um, in the KRG in Iraqi Kurdistan, for instance, we could talk about um, suicide rates among young women. Like, <clears throat> and there's a whole, there's a Pandora's box of like social issues that the women's revolution in northern eastern Syria was trying to solve. Of course, like most notably through, you know, looking at the women's militias like the YPJ, mm-hmm. but also women's dis- civil defense units, um, autonomous sort of areas of women's administration needing to have uh, a certain percentage of women on like any kind of a board for like municipal affairs, um, the ability to turn any space into an autonomous space for women and kick all the men out, Mm -hmm. but men not having the reverse privilege, you know, the list can go on, but that's, I think something that like Western leftists or even just people who support the idea of feminism can, can and should be really excited about in contrast to what the life looks like for women and a lot of other parts of uh, the world. Um, so that's been really important. That's been able to develop quite a bit. There's been uh, efforts of ecological development. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in America, a lot of people were familiar with the Make Rojava Green Again campaign um, and sort of just general ideas to restore um, the region and plant more trees and clean up pollution. Uh, these efforts have been, I think, like, much less of a part of the revolution than a lot of people in the West think that they were mm-hmm. or are. Um, yeah, these, these general ideas have been able to flourish and, uh, as I said before, in some areas, gain more traction than others. Like, I think the interesting thing is that the movement gives space for a lot of other ways of existence to mm, thrive and exist um, because it is pluralist in nature. Um, yeah. <clears throat> So, of course, the whole time the war against Daesh was going, uh, it ended about 
eh, roughly a little bit less than a year ago in terms of the war against Daesh, meaning the physical caliphate was defeated. But Daesh mm-hmm. um, still organizes in many parts of the world, including in northern eastern Syria. So it's not defeated, but the physical caliphate is. Mm-hmm. Um, with this defeat, most of the region of northern eastern Syria was able to enjoy a period of relative peace. Of course, there were always, you know, mines, IEDs, like limited assassinations. Um, during the summer of 2019, there was sort of a campaign from uh, ISIS of arson attacks on uh, a very large like, harvest. Uh, it was going to be one of the largest uh, harvests, harvests in the region's history. So there was a concerted effort to burn a lot of crops mm-hmm. to cause food shortages, which is a whole political campaign to force people to you know, rely less on the autonomous administration and more on the Syrian regime or possibly turn back to, you know, structures of ISIS that may still exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this campaign. But other than this, like, the region was relatively peaceful. Um, Turkey uh, threatened to invade uh, in December of 2018. Um, of course, as like, many listeners may be familiar with, Turkey um, being quite authoritarian and uh, as many would argue myself included um, a a full fascist state at this point has always been antagonistic towards the Kurdish people Mm -hmm. Um, whether that's criminalizing the Kurdish movement criminalizing the language making it um, almost impossible in some cases directly impossible for uh, Kurdish people to hold office in Turkey Um, Turkey's been a natural antagonist of the Kurdish people so as such, they always have designs on seizing northern eastern Syria. Um, they had the assault into Efren in 2018 and uh, taking and annexing that area and displacing massive amounts of people and desecrating the area, desecrating the population and turning it into a de facto part of the Turkish state. Um, and they started to invade and do like a broader operation um, uh, in December of 2018. Uh, December of 2018, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the, the years are really flying by. Um, and uh, this kind of raised the alarm for like a general Turkish invasion. There was no invasion in December, of course. Um, there was another alarm in August of uh, 2019. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, in October, when Donald Trump announced on Twitter his uh, intentions of pulling the very small American for the small number of American forces off of the border. Um, that was kind of the buffer between, uh, Turkey and Northern Eastern Syria. Um, Turkey announced its intentions to invade and, uh, did, um, Turkey launched an operation that was called operation peace spring. Um, this is obviously an incredibly ironic name, but Turkey, I think likes to, um, have very like cynical names for their operations. Like the operation into Afrin was called operation olive branch. Um, Afrin is a, larger region for growing and exporting olives mm-hmm. uh, operation peace spring so uh very like cynical and kind of dark names but they launched this operation that <clears throat> more or less concluded in november um they were able to seize a pretty large chunk of territory are holding it with proxy forces and air power and there's still a kind of soft war with uh isolated like drone artillery strikes that is now being aggravated because of Syria in alliance with Russia, um, fighting with Turkey over in the Idlib region. Um, and anytime something happens from 
Bashar al-Assad's regime, Turkey really likes to take it out on the Kurds. Mm -hmm. So if the Syrians bomb Turkey, Turkey will bomb the YPG. It's uh, a very, I think, bizarre response, but it's one that makes sense. Turkey generally looks for any reason to, you know, call out Kurdish provocation and then attack uh, the Kurds. Um, So that's, I think, a very, very, very broad overview (laughs) of kind of where the situation is now. So how many people are living in this autonomous region? Uh, Between two and three million. Okay. So this isn't exactly like a small project. Um, And so it, it would primarily call itself democratic confederalist. What is the, like, in, in really basic terms, what is, what does that mean? Where does the power sit in a democratic confederalist system? Um, so by aspiration, the power sits um, at local councils. So the idea is you have sort of communes that exist within small localities, like we're talking about a village, and then these villages can, you know, elect sort of spokes councils and people to sort of represent the needs of the community. These um, people are open to rotation, do rotate and do change, are, you know, chosen um, not in a representative democratic way, but in a very direct way mm-hmm. by the people in this commune. So it's the idea of bottom up. Um, and then these people go to sort of a regional council uh, called like a canton. And then this goes all the way up to sort of a council for the whole region. Um, so rather than from the, the top down, it, it just goes from the bottom up. I think that's like the the fastest, <laughs> okay. mostly quick, quick and quick, dirty way of describing it. Um, you know, leftist listeners would probably hear some similarities in here with uh, like anarcho-syndicalism or municipalism um, in like a very, very broad sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you were there doing medical work during the war with Turkey. Is that is that fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say. Um, what is that look like? Like what it like? You were there and you were basically like working in hospitals during a, a war situation. Yeah. So um, a, a lot of as listeners may or may not be familiar with, there's been a big idea for Westerners to go and uh, participate in the project. So people participate in like lots of things, whether it's media or just general society or social organizing. I'd say that's actually probably the biggest group of internationals right now are people doing social organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, people go to fight, people go to f- do medical work, people go to do um, fighting and medical work, you know, as some people would call it combat medicine. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and at times there's, there's always been different reasons for people going. At the beginning of the project, there were a lot of sort of like right-wingers and fascists going because they you know, wanted to, you know, kill Muslims to be like Frank. This was, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the general motivation, but um, these people started then publicly saying, you know, these people are communists um, <laughs> and like leaving, leaving on mass and, you know, weren't, wasn't going so well with having to take orders from women or having to create these autonomous space, uh, autonomous, autonomous spaces for women and mm-hmm. Really didn't do well with the general society, even though people like reactionary folks still do go. It's an extremely large numbers, and also these people just didn't do well in the general society um, when they when they left the front line. Um, that's not to say they didn't contribute mm-hmm. um, in really huge dynamic ways in some of the fiercest fights of the war against Daesh. They mm-hmm. did, but over time, it's become more of a thing where a lot of like leftists will go over, but generally like a 
you know, a ton of people go that are kind of apolitical and just sort of want to help what they think is like an inspiring situation or just even one that is uh, chaotic. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things to this where people can kind of have a, a white savior mindset or um, I think some people have like more pure intentions than others. And it's not up to me to judge mm-hmm. that really. I, I, that's not what I'm here to do. Um, um, yeah, I went because I wanted to learn from the process, see the contradictions of my own ideologies and uh, participate in the movement, whether or not that included um, like warfare or struggle or not. So um, <clears throat> I, yeah, I, I trained um, both before I left, but also uh, while I was there to participate um, as a medic in like frontline areas or directly on the front line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of shy away from saying like, I was a combat medic TM because like the notions of like combat medic in a lot of ways don't really exist in mm-hmm. uh, Rojava. Um, so that's a, kind of like a difficult thing to struggle with. But um, essentially what that looks like is <clears throat> when like the war started, um, I was based out of a hospital in Syracania and um, you know, there are ideas of, having triage centers going to the front line, providing first care to people in the fighting, mm-hmm. um, defend ourselves when we had to bring these people back to triage. Then these people would go up to higher care. Um, during, you know, fighting makes things complicated. So um, the the system of, you know, where was first care, where was triage, where was higher care, what did transport look like? These got more complicated and maybe we can cover that later. But um but generally, uh, doing medical work there kind of means you have to be comfortable either doing nothing or everything intermittently. Mm-hmm. So for me, that meant like learning really fast how to um, work both sort of like uh, in the field, but also like, you know, in a hospital setting and sort of rapidly change this out. So this looked like basically working in hospitals or working in the field and um, rapidly kind of going back and forth with what the knee was sometimes being like more directly engaged or directly being, you know, shelled or shot at or, you know, being under airstrikes, um, like drone strikes. Um, and other times it looked like being very far away from that kind of stuff and like staffing a triage point and waiting for people to come. It's just kind of an as needed thing. Yeah. So one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show, uh, one, just so that, um, people can hear about what's going on in, uh, the autonomous region in Syria but um, also basically how lessons that you've maybe learned or that, you know, people have learned through what's happening there, how to apply them here. Well, there's no here on the internet. You know, anyone who can understand an English language podcast might be listening to this, but how to apply it to other places. Basically like the premise of this podcast is that, um, a lot of people are anticipating crisis to generalize um, and it is generalizing across the world. So one of the things that's really interesting to me about the autonomous region is that you have this um, not utopian society, but this attempt at a better society that's arriving during crisis. And that's like a kind of hopeful thing but it's also sort of reminds us that <laughs> that 
unfortunately, a lot of these opportunities to create better worlds are happening because really horrendous things are happening. Um, and so that's kind of why I want to talk to you about some of the lessons that you've learned and some of the skills that might be applicable to to struggle more more broadly. So when you first uh, came back, I talked to you briefly about uh, some of your experiences. And one of the things that really struck me is this idea of um, how machismo and also kind of ableism apply to self-defense and community defense practice. I was wondering if you wanted to talk about some of the things that you learned or observed over there. Yeah, I think, um, so I think for context for the listeners, um, before I was going and like have all intentions of now, like participating in like various projects of, I think, let's just say people that typically are not having opportunities to learn skills of self-defense, whether that's armed or unarmed or, um, learn ways of like direct first aid, um, uh, these kind of things. So I was like quite present in these spaces and, um, trying to be on the journey of like helping people and like acquiring like those skill sets and knowledges. And while I was like over, um, I think I'll preface by saying that if like I didn't come back without a lot of really hard questions for myself and a lot of hard critiques of myself and changes, I think that would be a pretty <laughs> waste of experience. Um, and I think one of the biggest things I was noticing was like about how, yeah, like you were saying, like machismo and ableism were showing up in spaces. Like I very directly remember like a conversation with a friend, um, like very soon, uh, before I left where, you know, we were working on some skills and there was like something that like quite literally involved like running up a hill. And, um, you know, this, this friend, uh, was like having a hard time, um, like making it up a hill in a certain period of time. And like the question became like, maybe this like kind of skill set just isn't for me. And I, like, I think at the time, like I, I was probably even more callous than this, but it was just like, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And kind of went into this like notion that you hear a lot of like, yeah, there's place in the struggle for everyone. Yeah. But like hidden within that, I think I like saw this like really deep ableism of like, we, you, you know, now you're, places doing media or doing outreach or uh being a, a writer or farming or like basically anything from, like direct uh like struggle you know it's saying essentially saying that if there was a front line you should not be on the front line because mm-hmm. of your like um you know because of how uh, like i think how able you might be in like certain physical realms yeah like strength or speed or stamina or any of these kinds of things mm-hmm and like i was thinking about this a lot because um yeah there are like very different notions of like sport and exercise and like especially the kurdish culture um and like different ways that you know i think about like small things about how if you were like in say a group of friends here uh and maybe it wouldn't be so bizarre if someone kind of started stretching for instance or maybe even like doing a plank or like a push-up or two like this i mean it it would be like bizarre but i don't think it would be the highest form of like social taboo you know Mm -hmm. um and i think that's just like how we like engage with sport and um like our conceptions of physical fitness and like i had all these like very i think like very set and standard metrics like before i went 
I had all these ideas about like what I would and wouldn't need to do physically. So I really wanted to like hold myself to, um, you know, certain fitness standards put forward by like various military forces. So I could say like, I'm at this benchmark physical fitness and I need this because, because of a reason that I've kind of conjured up in my head. Like no one's told me I need this. (laughs) And like, I got there and all of a sudden, like, you know, you're seeing, you know, I think like, you know, Kurdish men that like are certainly not exercising and like many are stronger and like, or like rather in like different conceptions of like how much they can like lift and like how fast they can run because like Western ideas of like physical fitness and like body image are like gradually tricking, trickling over to mm-hmm. that area of the world. But like by and large, it's just kind of not how things are approached. Um, and so I guess I started considering like how people actually are able to find places and struggle, like even arm struggle, no matter like what their physical ability might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like I can think of like very direct experiences of seeing people that were the age of, you know, maybe someone that might be like a grandmother or like a grandfather that were directly engaged in fighting, um, you know, and not like in a, in an abstract way. It's not like they were like helping fill supply boxes or like restock ammunition or, right. you know, tourniquet. like, you know, we're, we're taking fire and returning it and, you know, in like really intense situations and like seeing that and being like, yeah, these people are not only like perfectly capable and competent, but are actually like, you know, pretty pretty good at this um really i think maybe like rethink um a couple of these notions and it's not to say like people shouldn't try to become you know to some standard of fitness that like they think is like applicable to like the skill set that they want to develop but i definitely feel like putting much less of an emphasis on like that kind of uh thinking now and i i can broaden it but if that's maybe a as far as like the ableism and as far as like the machismo and all that, like um, I think in like all these efforts to develop like a left gun culture or an anarchist gun culture or like whatever these things are, I, I see like a lot of the same kind of uh, elements that we might think are less desirable, like still showing up, whether that's like, uh, being drawn to like certain types of gear and kind of like posing with the gear and like wanting to be seen as like having stuff, um, like, you know, like direct call out to organizations, you know, like, like the SRA who like feel like super empowered by posting pictures of their new rifles and like, for people who are listening, the SRA is the socialist rifle association. Um, you know, this, this kind of idea of like, look at what I have, which like, Mm -hmm. it's very much like it's still putting an emphasis on the gun and the stuff. And it's still saying like, who has access to resources and who doesn't. Well, it's also um, the individual ownership of guns, you know? Right. Right. As, as opposed to, you know, yeah. Collectivized ownership, one rifle per family, like, and any of these like, yeah, broad ideas. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a really good point. But I think as far as like, machismo it's still like kind of this um idea of being able to do violence that turns everyone's life into like this much more exciting adventure you know like i think about like all the you know anarchist buds i know that carry a firearm uh every single day of their life Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of friends like i think particularly um like trans women and uh (laughs) you know and especially black trans women that like have a very 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 direct visceral need to carry implements for self-defense every single day as like 
um, a white man, I, I perhaps, I think I want to be more self-critical about like in the so-called U S why I might be thinking about needing to carry a gun every Mm -hmm. single day. And like actually what the chances of me being exposed to violence are. Um, now like there's also concepts in here of like wanting to be able to protect someone or defend someone, but like this, that that are really important. But I think also inside this, there's like this idea that if you're carrying an implement, um, like this, your life goes from like whatever mundane existence you're living to like, you're all of a sudden potentially like the hero or like able to perform this like really intense action. So your entire life becomes about the hypervigilance and needing to be in this like higher state of awareness. And, um, it kind of spirals out of control and like very quickly, you know, you can turn into this like, yeah, I think like pretty like, macho thing of feeling like you always need to have like a plate carrier and a rifle in your car and that, like <laughs> you know there's there's going to be like some kind of violent thing happening at any moment and that's mm-hmm. not to like, don't be prepared but i think you should also be like aware of what effect this can have on your mind and like your lifestyle and mm-hmm. how you show up to the people you love um and yeah i mean i think this stuff all relates to like machismo and like masculinity because of like what skill sets we prioritize and like just how we prioritize them yeah um and i think what i was seeing like there and that's not to say like machismo is not showing up in like the ypg and even like the ypj because it is for sure um but i think it's a general idea of people want to you know be proficient and be skilled for the tools of like tactical uh self-defense at a moment's notice but also as soon as those skills aren't needed there's also a need to say like cool what other projects can i be doing like i need to be you know i i should be perhaps like training as much as i can to keep these skills fresh but also when this is not happening how else can i contribute Mm -hmm. to um the sort of collectives or formations or the you know yeah society around me whether that's maybe there's no war so i should work on farming or i should work on you know, perhaps skilling up my uh, higher care stuff in hospitals or technological work. Um, I think it's this idea of seeing like the ability to do violence um, as like a skill set and not prioritizing it in a way that I think brings out a lot of like violent tendencies and savior tendencies and patriarchal mm-hmm. tendencies. And um, and I, I don't think like I think everyone this is kind of on the tip of everyone's like imagination. And I think most people that are involved in this like idea of like people's self-defense whatever that means like kind of have an awareness that this either is a problem or is a potential problem and i think we're just like yeah well there's a a thing that i i've i've i think i've talked to talked about a couple times already on the show and i'm sure i'm going to talk about more about but i'm really interested in this idea where you both generalize and specialize and people sometimes forget that like both are necessary like for example like in the society i want to live in let's say that i've chosen to specialize in writing and music or something that doesn't mean that i shouldn't help when it comes time for harvest you know um even if my specialization isn't figuring out what to plant where i should probably have a generalized knowledge in the same way that like you know in our society i think for the most part there's people who cook really well and then there's people who kind of know how to cook and i only kind of know how to cook because i'm a it's not something I've specialized in, but it doesn't mean I'm off the hook for like knowing how to feed myself. And I wonder if you could apply that same kind of concept to, well, to, to war, to, to community defense, to depend, to defending an autonomous region. It seems like that's kind of what's happening there. Maybe 
maybe I'm wrong, but it's if the ability to do violence or participate in violence is a, a general skill, not just a specialized skill the way it is in, um, well, at least in U.S. society. Yeah, I mean, I the instance that like comes to my mind is like the efforts that have been, uh, I think, generally quite successful, though they could like improve, is the efforts to like provide basic uh, medical education mm-hmm. to a lot of the fighters in the YPG and the YPJ. And like what this means is that, you know, <clears throat> many listeners or maybe you're not like familiar with the phrase like golden hour that the vast majority of like combat deaths occur in the first like hour uh, in which like a wound is received. Okay. And within during like the first few minutes are like the most critical. So, um, you know, almost 11,000, uh, fighters fell shaheed in the war or fell, fell as martyrs in the war against ISIS from the YPG and the YPJ, you know, almost 11,000. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, while I think we ought to draw a lot of inspiration from like these like amazing people, I think we should also like critically analyze like how many of those people did not need to become martyrs. Like how many of them, like I think died of, um, you know, say like wounds on extremities, like arms and legs, um, mm-hmm. and just simply bleeding out because people did not have the tools, um, or like the skill set of just like how to control a bleed before someone could get to higher care. So there's like been this big effort to distribute high quality tourniquets or, uh, help people like understand basically like how to improvise one, but ideally get quality tourniquets, mm-hmm. um, into the hands of people on the front line so that when they arrive at the triage point or like, you know, let's say, because as I kind of talked about earlier, the idea of combat medics is not existing so much over there. Like Mm -hmm. it it does, but it's like concept that has to be, I think like struggled over. Um, You know, sometimes the first, the first time someone will see medical care is when they get to the hospital. Um, So when, if someone comes to the hospital, uh, the difference is, did a friend learn just enough medical skills to know how to apply a tourniquet and put it high and tight. So there's no chance of it, you know, being too low or being too close to the wound mm-hmm. and just these very basic skills to apply this tourniquet, apply it correctly for their, for their knowledge base and stop the bleed for it, you know, to sur- for the person to survive a 20 minute car ride to higher care. Mm-hmm. Um, and this doesn't mean that this person that these people are medics or anything close to this. It just means they have like this very, very basic knowledge in the same way that like I've seen like a really inspiring, I think push amongst like so-called community defense groups um, where I'm from and people finally saying like, Hey, if we're carrying guns, maybe we should also carry tourniquets. Um, You know, it's kind of like the same mentality. Not everyone should be a medic, but everyone um, or, or like the trend that I see in like direct action spaces of more people having generalized medical knowledge rather than just like crossing their fingers and hoping that if something really bad happened that like a street medic would find them. Um, right. So that's how it was in enforced defense communities that I was part of is, you know, there was a really conscious effort to make sure that everyone had certain medical skills because we're, you know, and, an hour away from the nearest like building, you know, um, in a lot of those spaces. And so, you know, as someone who's, I've talked about a lot in this show, but I'm, I'm very squeamish. And so yet I still make myself learn these things, even though I consider myself to be like 
that is a specific weakness and always will be because I have this um, essentially personality trait that makes it very hard for me, but I still try to do it. I was actually, I was wondering if you could um, just for like really quick practical stuff, could you talk about what tourniquets are best and maybe bust some myths about tourniquets? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So yeah, just like really quickly, I want to like, I think like shout out um, the groups that I was like lucky enough to receive medical training uh, from before I went, because like, I think it's important to like accredit knowledge, like Mm -hmm. um, the the people that like, I don't feel able to name, I like just still like want to shout them out in case like they hear this, like not everyone like wants to train publicly. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's real. Um, You know, and like folks uh, in sort of like the Western North Carolina community that were providing like medical trainings uh yeah it's just been like super invaluable and that was like a great building block so that i could be more receptive to more medical education that i got when i was in northern eastern syria before Mm -hmm. the war um and then was able to um get more on the job training uh which is (laughs) perhaps like less desirable but um sorry i'm just laughing because it's a horrible i mean it's not even euphemistic it's literal (laughs) but it just is a horrible euphemism for um yeah. watching people die or preventing people from dying yeah yeah i mean i think there's and there's a lot to there that too you know it's like within that and within these skill sets like um making a mistake and yeah like i i made them like mm-hmm. uh, yeah like result can result in people dying or almost dying and like um yeah i think like knowing how to cope with those things or like train enough to make sure you won't have those moments even though mm-hmm. uh, kind of everyone does if <laughs> Yeah, I think that's like a reality to engage in. But yeah, tourniquets. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so busting myths. Um, there is a lot of kind of stuff that gets thrown out about how you cannot have a tourniquet on for more than an hour, an hour and a half or two hours. And that if you apply a tourniquet, you will have to amputate that limb and tourniquets are a last resort. Um, these are a couple myths to bust. Um, so first, uh, because of the you know imperialist and racist global war on terror uh we have like a lot of um direct like information on just how long we can keep tourniquets on like there are cases of tourniquets being applied and having to stay on for anywhere around like up to 12 hours and these people Mm -hmm. not losing limbs Mm -hmm. um it's generally understood now that uh tourniquets like and by people in like combat arms and people in um like emergency medicine that um, tourniquets are should be seen as like a first resort rather than a last resort. And like I have been in like sort of medical training spaces where people are still calling tourniquets like close to a last resort. And <clears throat> that's the first thing to get out of the way. Um, tourniquets should be seen as a first resort if you are in a stressful situation. Like if, you know, from the extreme end of the spectrum if you're actively taking fire mm-hmm. and you can see that someone is bleeding and not just a cut but they're bleeding quite a bit and it's on you know an arm or a leg that mm-hmm. you should just go ahead and apply the tourniquet and then you know you can always assess it later or when it gets to higher care mm-hmm. but that's that's the thing treat it as a first resort if you see the blood and your first thought is wow that's that's a lot of blood you know you you, you should you, you can and should put the tourniquet on because you know someone can bleed out in a matter of minutes if mm-hmm. that bleeding is critical and of course like because of the types of clothing that we wear like a lot of these clothing say like 
dark clothings where it's harder to, um, you know, I'm looking at like friends in the anarchist community. Like I'm wearing all black right now. You could just point that out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be like maybe a little bit harder to see like just how much blood is, is occurring. Um, yeah. Or like any thick clothing, it may not become readily apparent. So, um, maybe don't take the time to say like, is, <laughs> is this like a critical bleed and will they bleed out in a few minutes? Mm-hmm. If you see like quite a bit of blood just, and you also don't know how to, you know, I think check the wound or, you know, don't, don't cut away the clothing. Don't do that stuff. Just go ahead and put the tourniquet on. Can you put um, it on over their clothing? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> as far as like placement, um, there's like general thoughts like, yeah, you should not be say like placing it on, an elbow or a kneecap, these kinds of things. Like these are like quite obvious no-nos, but the general rule is that if you feel confident in being able to locate where the wound is, it is Mm -hmm. ideal to put the tourniquet um, around three inches above the wound. Okay. Um, But um, there's now kind of this idea of just high and tight that if you just see blood and you're in a really bad situation and perhaps like you're not a trained medic or a trained first responder or you the only education you've seen in this worst case scenario is that you listen to this podcast and you went out and ordered a tourniquet <laughs> on the internet, uh-huh. like, you know, which I hope people do, um, just put it as high as you can on the leg, you know, for, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, penis bodied people, like make sure you don't, uh, catch that in the tourniquet. Like mm-hmm. that should be obvious, but like it happens, mm-hmm. um, especially for like wounds in the groin area, mm-hmm. um, that, that things can be, strange down there and sorry these yeah details but like no no it makes um, sense. it's it's things you should think about so like if it's on the leg um you know kind of as close as you can to you know all the way up the thigh um without pinching stuff off um and for the arm like kind of close up to the armpit um <clears throat> so yeah just high and tight if um you don't have the time or don't have the training to assess like what is actually like three inches or mm-hmm. a little bit more above the wound. The benefit to um, placing it in yeah, different places, like perhaps having the ability that if you aren't able to, uh, I mean, there's a couple benefits, but one of the most direct is that if that tourniquet doesn't work, you could perhaps toss another one on mm-hmm. um, if that doesn't directly stop the bleeding. But, but generally if yeah, you don't have more training and you don't go see a stop the bleed training in your area or seek more medical education, yeah, just go high and tight. Um, <clears throat> what kind of tourniquets? Uh, I I got the bad education when I was younger. When I was a a, a boy scout, I uh, they definitely taught us that it's an absolute last resort, and they also definitely taught us about using our boy scout bandana and a stick. And I've since learned that maybe improvised tourniquets are. Um, not so effective um, but also that there's a, I believe what two major types of tourniquets that are available can you talk about those yeah okay so as far as like the types of tourniquets that you should get um, I am a big advocate of the cat T tourniquet um, so if you search that on the internet or go to like a local say, like, tactical store or what have you um, yeah Mm-hmm. cat tea tourniquet um cat tea tourniquets are going to be 30 dollars anywhere between like 29 and 35 dollars if if you are paying less than that you're probably either getting an industry discount which if you're 
listening to this podcast and then typing in tourniquet, I, I would imagine you may not be getting an industry discount. Mm-hmm. Um, there are like a lot of fake tourniquets out there. Um, That's so if cool. Yeah. If you're, <laughs> yeah. So if you're seeing something on Amazon that um, says, you know, $15 cat tea, what have you probably don't buy it. Like, it's mm-hmm. just like what I like to do for the internet is go to like tactical gear stores mm-hmm. like you know i'm not going to shout out like any of these manufacturers of like plate carriers or holsters or any of this kind of stuff because like i don't want to give a shout out to <laughs> you know like companies run by uh you know those kind of folks but like mm-hmm. yeah quality gear is quality gear and so generally if i'm going to a store that sells like plate carriers and medical gear and that kind of thing or perhaps like the north american rescue website Mm-hmm. Um, just going straight to those websites and ordering tourniquets from there because like they're generally pretty price controlled. You're going to see a difference of like one to $2 maybe. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like you go to a website that is like not Amazon or not eBay and order your tourniquet from there. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I would say with cat teeth tourniquets is um, if possible to buy them in person. Um so like I really like going to like a gun store or something like that and just mm-hmm. asking them, do you have cat tea tourniquets? And I really think that any quality gun store should be unequivocally saying yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and just buying it there because then you can check the tourniquet one. Of course it should come in packaging that has the official like cat tea trademark instructions on it, but also on the back of the tourniquet, you should see a stamp that um, says like, you know, the manufacturer, the factory, it's from Cat T. It will have, like, in some cases, it has a date on it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a pretty big indicator. I haven't, and someone might be hearing this and be like, yeah, I've, I've seen this, but I, I haven't seen a fake that had that stamp. Okay. Um, and another thing to look for is on the tourniquet, the plastic piece called the windlass that is the bit that you turn to make it tighter once the tourniquet is properly applied. Mm-hmm. Um meaning you've tightened down the strap all the way, which you should always tighten it down extremely, extremely tight. That's like the first step a lot of people miss is not cranking that strap all the way down before turning the windlass. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the fake windlasses, you can notice they are one thickness the whole way through, kind of like a stick. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas like the real ones, you'll kind of see a little bit of like a bulge in the middle. Like the middle is a little bit thicker. Um, Just a couple things to look out for. Like I said, generally, if you go to like a quality tactical or gun store and you just throw $30 down, on a tourniquet there you're usually in the clear and okay. that's what i prefer to do because i uh did have like a tourniquet fail on me over there because there are like um you know fakes over there quite a few yeah. um and and there are like there are a lot of other tourniquets uh out there there's um soft t soft tourniquets are also applied by like the committee for tactical medicine or whatever um that committee's called mm-hmm. those are also really good um I think they're pretty great for legs. Um, and is it the same as what I was calling like a SWAT? Maybe I just had the the name wrong. No, no, SWAT is a different thing. Okay. Um, softies have like a metal buckle and are like kind of of like a canvasy type looking material. You've probably mm-hmm. seen them around, but like I think they're really cool for legs. Not cool, but yeah, they work <laughs> well. Um, but just for the purposes of this podcast, I just say like just go get a cat tee. Like okay. I think like by and large that's what most training material is based around. And I think that they're the most user friendly. Um, 
And just for that reason, I'm just like, yeah, just, just go with the one that is, um, yeah, I think easy to use. Uh, there are like other tourniquets. There's this one called, uh, rat um, rapid application tourniquet. Um, don't get them. They're not good. Um, they're like really kind of like this thin, stretchy material. Um, yeah, just not, not super great. And they're also like around the same price as a cat tea, depending on which manufacturer. So I just say, just buy the cat tea. Um, yeah, uh, I carry a, a cat tea in my backpack. Um, basically because it it seems like for, well, I I prep, obviously I wouldn't be doing this podcast. Um, but it seems like for most of the threat models I'm interacting with, it seems more useful for a gun, more useful than a gun in a, a gun scenario. Um, because it seems more likely that I will have to like deal with myself or someone else getting shot than specifically have to like, you know, shoot someone. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And I just like, you know, I leave the house without a gun quite a bit of the time, but mm-hmm. I never go anywhere without a tourniquet. Um, yeah. Make sure it's like staged properly. If you Google how to stage a cat tea, you know, it makes more sense just to Google that instead of me explaining how to stage mm-hmm. a cat tea with a podcast. <laughs> it could be a little chaotic. Um, SWAT tees, um, stretch, wrap, and tuck tourniquets are like another nice thing. I would not call it a first. I would call that like the thing to use if you don't have a cat tee. Um, but like, so really I've heard, just, no, go ahead. No, just, just, yeah, just, just get the cat tee. You know, like okay. this is what I'm going to say over and over again. And um, okay. as far as like for improvised tourniquets, like that was really cool that your, uh, you know, scout education told you to utilize like some kind of a windlass. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning like that that's the stick was for yeah. an improvised windlass, which is cool. Um, stick is perhaps like not the, not the best best thing you know maybe like a hammer or uh, a knife with a high quality sheath obviously mm-hmm. the sheath is very important or like a piece of metal um like a kydex sheath not like a leather sheath right right um these things can be good um but something that can also be really nice is say like if you take like a bike tube you can just like fashion you know quickly improvise tourniquets by just having cut up bike tubes or tires around mm-hmm. not tire stones because they're nice and stretchy um, you generally want it to be maybe around like an inch and a half to two inch thick if possible. But, you know, if you use like a bandage or your neckerchief um, or a scarf or that kind of a thing, and you you happen to be carrying a carabiner mm-hmm. and a little kind of key ring, these two things can like make your improvised tourniquet a lot better. You can pass the neckerchief through the key ring. You can attach after you make the proper oh, knot mm-hmm. your carabiner, use the carabiner as a windlass, and then because not only do you need the windlass, you also need something to lock the windlass in place. Mm-hmm. So that's where the gearing comes in. So like improvised tourniquets, I saw like I saw a sock working. You know, someone used like a sock <laughs> and a piece of steel, and it was great. Like uh-huh. you know, um, oh, and and uh, yeah, myth busting. Um, don't don't remove tourniquets. Mm-hmm. Um, there are like proper procedures for removing tourniquets after a certain period of time, or like gradually releasing mm-hmm. the pressure kind of thing i'm not going to go on go into that in this podcast but i would say do not release a tourniquet unless you have like some kind of higher training in that regard like a lot Mm -hmm. of this was happening over there people would get to two hours and they would just release a tourniquet um and yeah don't do that um if you apply a tourniquet high and tight that like generally will increase the chance of like damage to the Mm -hmm. limb later on but like you know, the person could also just bleed out and die. So um, right. just don't, don't let, don't, 
take the tourniquet off. That's like the last myth to bust. <laughs> okay. So one of the reasons I want to talk to you is because uh, at least from where I've been watching nervously as my, you know, worried about my friends over in a war zone. Uh, I've been also thinking a lot about what I assume it must feel like to be in a place, this, um, this, carved out autonomous region that is of course far from utopian far from perfect but watching it be under such serious threat and like existential threat like you know i don't i don't think anyone really knows to what degree the autonomous zone is going to continue to exist um so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that feels and maybe i'm asking because I, i feel like that's something that is a more sharp and specific version of something that I feel like a lot of people are feeling around the world right now as we watch um, global crisis deepen. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, yeah, there's, there's so many feelings. Um, And like so many, I think fears and frustrations, I think um, like the biggest I think the thing that I always think about is like the reason why these skills of like taking care of each other and self-defense and, you know, critical medical care, all this stuff, it's so important because like if we have any kind of uh, insurrectionary or revolutionary situation, or even just people just trying to carve out a little bit better existence for themselves, like authoritarian nation states will always like see that as a threat and will always attack. And mm-hmm. so I think like realizing that, you know, if you get really excited, someone's going to try and mess your thing up. That's like, uh, yeah. Um, (laughs) I I think a reality, like even, you know, if we go with what I generally understand is like, you know, sort of the insurrectionist tradition of believing that like, yeah, revolt or like movements like that should be generalized and not be based around like an armed vanguard and that kind of thing. You Mm -hmm. still do, even if you're able to, you know, gain that space or, you know, succeed, whatever success looks like to you, you're, you're still going to need to defend that space at some point from someone. And yeah. So like that being said, um, I think like within all this, like, you know, uh, the podcast having a general idea of like apocalypse and like living through the end of the world, like the whole, you know, especially during like, uh, the siege of Syracania, like I really felt like I was like living through the end of the world. Um, you know, uh, and I don't think I ever understood this idea of apocalypse and, but it made me start like thinking more about the experiences of like, indigenous people, um, especially in, uh, like the continent from which I'm on, um, mm-hmm. kind of having, you know, multiple apocalypses, like multiple ends of the world and how like more and more like a concept of apocalypse feels like a very kind of like western idea um Mm -hmm. because yeah of of course like i think as many listeners of your podcast probably like appreciate um so we're already kind of living through you know an extinction event and like various climate crises and you know in many ways i think like these you know uh situations are kind of already here uh but it's just like about what it looks like to us and i think in the west like we turn these things as like apocalypse or end of the world because like to see like the sky on fire to like you know be surrounded by bombs and like gunfire and like everything crumbling Mm -hmm. and everything you know and love just being totally 
shredded in front of your eyes like is not something people especially in the so-called united states have had to experience on that level right um except in like very isolated like incidents and so i think like conceptualizing that is like a real stretch for people and it was like a stretch for me in a lot of ways um i think like understanding how to manage like mental health in these kind of situations is like a really really big deal because of the totality of it and mm-hmm. especially in like a stateless society like really feeling like there aren't any friends and just <laughs> to, to the situation and really feeling like your back is against the wall um and all you can rely on is just kind of the meager resources that are existing and understanding how you can fight with small arms you know at best like some artillery and mortars but like at the end of the day it's that against drones and planes and nato and like it's uh there's no other way to put other than yeah totally helpless and totally terrifying because at the end of the day like there's really like no one no one coming it's like watching the reality that everyone's constantly begging you know the united states to like impose a no-fly zone and you know one like uh people in the u.s being like well that's an appeal to authority and you shouldn't want a no-fly zone it's like oh cool i guess the alternative (laughs) is getting like bombed into the ground um but it was like it was watching every day the united states imposing no-fly zones so that their convoys could kind of move freely far away from the fighting mm-hmm. and we'd watch like us like helicopters and planes like move to enforce that fly zone over the places where like turkish drones were flying and impose the fly zone the no fly zone and then once their convoy was out of there they like pulled back mm-hmm. the no fly zone and like you know let the let the bombings continue and let the drone strikes continue and like I think watching this every day and just like watching, I think how like, uh, um, yeah, like it's understandable to have like a cynical view of the world without living in that situation. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, I think in a big way, it's really just deepened my cynicism, but, um, even deepened and intensified my like already quite intense distrust and distaste over nation states and borders and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. How do you manage your mental health in that situation or now, now that you're home? Not to bring up a probably sensitive subject. Yeah, I mean, like, I think I was really lucky because, like, I was really, like, struggling before I I went away. Mm -hmm. And I was having a lot of serious problems and serious shortcomings. And, um, yeah, you know, this doesn't have to be, like, a confessional booth, nor nor will it be. But, like... (laughs) You know, I, you know, did some work, did a lot of work. I went to therapy, all this kind of stuff because I didn't want to take my baggage overseas. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I really felt lucky that I had like four to five months before the war started to like really do some serious work on myself in a really focused setting where Mm -hmm. there wasn't stuff like alcohol or like social capital or clicks or like at least not in the same way that social capital and clicks can I think exist in some of our spaces over over here and like I was lucky enough to have that time before the war started because like I really think that if like the war started like right when I got over I think I would have like absolutely crumbled and and even then like I really struggled like I think during the war with like you know a sense of like self-worth um 
you know, it's like really hard to feel kind of like worthless during the situation and like uh, really like struggled with, you know, mistakes and shortcomings because any mistakes there, you know, I think I like summon people to say like, yeah, think about like the last time you kind of messed up at an action mm-hmm. and like that kind of thing. And then like just taking those consequences and like, <laughs> you know, blowing them up a lot. And, and it's just, it's kind of the same feeling, but like, um, like this stuff was really difficult and I still like, you know, I struggled What I noticed was like in, um, over there we have like a daily process of criticism and self-criticism that the movement calls tech mill. And this doesn't need to be a, a long thing on tech mill. Um, <laughs> although at some point it can be maybe, but like, uh, when the war started and we weren't able to have these like daily kind of moments of reflection and like holding each other, and holding each other and ourselves accountable to each other and mm-hmm. like that kind of space, my ability and like, I think others ability to like process our relationships really well and like stay out of conflict or like manage conflict really deteriorated. So I think about like having intentional kind of plans, whatever that is to like um, hold ourselves and each other accountable before conflict arises or like as conflict is arising because there kind of is no time for handling those things in a war zone, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and, um, I think like understanding that, but I think, um, like some of the most difficult feelings like kind of arose from like, uh, this like fear. I mean, obviously like the fear of like death is existing and you just have to try to make sure that doesn't like govern your thoughts because like ultimately, especially when you're like under drones or under air power, like there's, there's actually really nothing you can do about it. You know, I, right. and, that's one of the scariest things is just like kind of like giving yourself up and like not just making your peace with that, but also putting it out of your mind entirely. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean behaving recklessly. It means like still like being judicious with your movement <laughs> to put mm-hmm. it lightly, but like um, no, you can't be thinking about like your mortality every moment. And, but also the realization that a lot of your friends back home, or like, you know, people that were your friends before you left, like may have also come to that realization and have like already kind of accepted your death. And like, that is like a really, I think a hard thing to engage with. Yeah. But, but also like when you are able to like let go of that, like a lot of really beautiful things can happen in terms of like how you're able to relate to others in a really like genuine deep way, like how you understand what in your life is a priority and what isn't and how you're able to like fulfill your like deepest desires for your capacity to like be good to others or be caring or like be courageous and like in the same way that i felt just like so deeply disgusted with like the things that people can do to each other i also at so many times just felt so inspired by like what people can do to each other mm-hmm. and to do for each other and like and like there's so i mean there's so there's so many small things like considering carving out a time for like meditation even in like really hard situations if time allows or like having a really trusted friend who like knows what to look for when you're starting to feel really messed up like you know someone just like looking over me like hey let's like take a second and do like some deep breathing exercises and Mm -hmm. like having the practice that kind of stuff before the hard situations occur like can be like so so immensely important so i don't know if that helps about like what stuff's like there and it's like and it's not to say that you know, we did all this work and like, I wasn't having shortcomings a lot over there because like, yeah, I was, everyone was, and there are always ways to be better. But like, (laughs) I think a lot of people think about going over 
to those kind of zones because they're feeling desperate at home or because they like want things to escape and like and that's also why like i think a lot of people hope for like in some weird way hope for like a crisis or a catastrophe on mm-hmm. like a global scale because it make they think it'll like provide this escape from our day-to-day life but ultimately you just have to reckon with what your reality was before and who you were <laughs> before that all happened yeah so I'd, I'd say we have to do the work now as far as like how i manage mental health now um yeah i think for me it was like really important to like come back and really try to be in community and like live a communal life that was like more like what i was living over there because Mm -hmm. i think one of the hardest things about our society here is like the deep isolation and like individualism of it all and like being in a place where like i can have meals with like people that i love and care about and like you know (laughs) daily conversations about like political perspectives and this kind of stuff is like really and a lot of other things and engage in like political projects is like you know deeply helpful for me but um like understanding and being proactive about seeking therapy um and not just putting all the labor on um you know your loved ones um to always be there or like you know it's really easy when you like come back from these situations or like any hard situation whether it be like a protest or just like a shitty time at work to like turn to you know using substances or like using alcohol and like you know noticing like hey if i like have you know i I can start to you know i think in the past like as i think a lot of people do like struggle with like maintaining temperament like you know when like substances are around but i think for me it's like now understanding like okay if i have like a beer i'm much more likely to like you know have like a a thought about like something that happened over there and Mm -hmm. like i think be cognizant um herbs really help um like tinctures really help mm-hmm. um yeah like that's been great um and i can't like advocate for like the use of uh, like herbal remedies in times of panic um but yeah like broadly you, i, you I can't advocate for them sorry i, I can't well they're great i'll, I'll just make you can't advocate simple. enough yes okay um that's been like super helpful um and like kind of having like a go-to thing and like moments of crisis. But I think like generally, I think um, I talked about this a little bit when like we spoke last, but it's like mm-hmm. to try to step away as much as you can from these very, like I think Western ideas around like what trauma is and what it means mm-hmm. and like expecting everyone who comes back from these hard situations to be like totally smashed. Like, you know, I feel smashed many days, but I also feel much better than I did when I left, you know? Okay. And you know, when you're around like, people in these cultures that like ultimately have had to deal with like deeply traumatizing situations their entire life. You know, they've been in and around war for a decade. Um, like how traumatic situations are like register, you know, if we see trauma as being like a response to situations that are like above our capacity, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, obviously people over there have different capacities and like situations are like, you know, there are different thresholds I think for like what really smashes you. And so I think like being around people who don't view trauma or like PTSD from like war as like a given, um, is like really empowering because you can be like, you know, think about your friends back there and like think about the culture back there and like just try to be resilient and, and try to build and like, um, use it as a lesson and like move forward with it if that all makes sense, not to ramble or anything. No, that makes sense. It, it, it leaves me with a lot of thoughts that I'm certainly no expert on, but I think about U S cultures. I mean, especially anti-war and leftist U S culture is very steeped in 
um, talking about the soldiers' PTSD, specifically focused around the Vietnam War or around U.S. soldiers in the Vietnam War. And I wonder, you know, my my like gut instinct has to do with a lot of that being like conscripts forced into an imperialist war, you know, where they're not acting with agency, they're not acting um, for anything that could be construed as positive by almost any stretch of the imagination. And I don't know whether that's a difference or whether, yeah, I don't know. That's just my like off the top of my head thought around it. I I think it is like, I, I have a good friend who um, was in like the first uh, sort of wave of the Iraq invasion and like, you know, eventually became like a very, like, I think like very accomplished, like anti-war activist. And I'm like really mm-hmm. like immensely proud of him and what he's been able to do in his transformation and all this sort of thing. But like we were talking about like trauma and PTSD before I went and <laughs> he almost like brushed it off in like a way that was like, I think comically dismissive where he's like, Hey, Hey man, like <laughs> I was fighting for some evil shit that like, even though I'm <laughs> paraphrasing, he's like, e- even though like I didn't know it at the time it was evil and it was wrong and like that's what most of my trauma is over is like over having done hard things for bad reasons he's like mm-hmm. you're fighting for a good reason if you even have to fight he's like that's like you know makes the situation much different yeah and like and i really feel that like i don't feel like you know i feel guilt at like mistakes i made and shortcomings and like you know tactical decisions that i thought made sense at the time but then afterwards i thought were less than yeah like <laughs> i feel guilt over and pain over those kind of things. But like, I don't feel like a whole lot of guilt or frustration or trauma over the same things that like say us veterans do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of it is just like the, yeah, it's like, what, what do I have the capacity for? And, you know, so I felt like really hard the first time I like had to deal with like a whole bunch of people who, you know, got their position airstriked. Like that was like a really heavy situation because I never dealt with it before. Yeah. But like, you know, it's not from like this, like, inner guilt over like having done the wrong thing because i think a lot of these people coming home from wars for empire and uh that kind of thing like ultimately do feel guilty and i think it's about for them like reckoning with that guilt in a lot of ways yeah well um thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your thoughts with us and uh maybe i'll get a chance to talk to you about more of it in a later episode but yeah thank you can um oh yeah this Go this, this isn't to be on the podcast, but can I share a quote Wait. thing with you? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, like so this doesn't have to be on the podcast at all. But um, well, we can of, put it on. Yeah, one of um, my uh, like friends that I met over there, like mm-hmm. we we before I left uh, to go back home, we like stayed up and we're like talking about our experiences and stuff. And <clears throat> they passed me like a a small note before I left with a line from the catcher in the rye, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I thought was applicable. So I'm like sharing it with you and you can share it with your listeners if you like, yeah. um, among other things, you'll find that you're not the first person who is ever confused and frightened and even sickened by human behavior. You're by no means alone on that score. You'll uh, be excited and stimulated to know many, many people have been just as troubled morally and spiritually as you are right now. Happily, some of them left recordings of their troubles. You'll learn from them if you want to. Just as someday, if you have if you have something to offer, someone will learn something from you. It's a beautiful and reciprocal arrangement. And like, yeah, I don't know. In like the conversation about mental health, I like hung that on my wall because like it's felt like really like feeling like yeah, really frustrated 
uh, as it says, like sickened by human behavior, just being able to like, yeah, there, there is something good from this, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, hoping to like share whatever that goodness is, is, uh, yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, any final thoughts on, um, well, on anything that you've talked about today before, before we end this? Um, no, uh, go to a stop the bleed course, um, <laughs> uh, buy a cat tourniquet, get together with your friends. If you do any of this kind of training, whether that's tactical or medical by yourself, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, always do it with a buddy so that you can learn partner skills, whatever those partner skills mean to you. Um, and if people want to like, you know, donate and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, Havasora Kurd or the Kurdish Red Crescent is like sort of the biggest group of medics, it's like the Kurdish version of the Red Cross mm-hmm. um, and like donations to them, like go a really long way in terms of like providing direct care not just like in times of conflict, but also to like refugee camps. Um, and like <clears throat> if people are also interested, there are like some efforts to like start a, a fund for like returning volunteers. Um, mm-hmm. And if like there's interest in your listeners and like contributing to that, uh, maybe we could like drop a, you know, PayPal or something like that in the show notes, if sure. that's if you, possible. Yeah. Do you know the PayPal off the top of your head? Nope. I will write it down. You can put it. I'll if, put it in the you, show notes. If that's okay with you. Yep. Thank you so much. Cool. And Thank I'll you. Talk to you sometime soon. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please tell people about it. Please post about it to social media, tell your friends in person. I find out about most of my podcasts that way. It's pretty much through word of mouth. You can also rate and review the show on wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Please consider subscribing. That is also the main way I find my podcasts is that they show up in Spotify for me. So that's how I know when new episodes come out. I'll probably continue to do this show weekly for the foreseeable future. And if you want to support more directly and you're able to, please consider supporting me on Patreon. My Patreon is patreon.com slash Margaret Killjoy. That's my primary income. I expect it to go down right now, and that's okay. If you're already supporting me and you can't anymore or you can't right now, don't, you know, don't. Other people with more stable incomes, please consider supporting me uh, and supporting the work that I'm doing. In particular, I'd like to thank Chris and Nora and Haas the dog and Kirk and Willow and Natalie and Sam. This show literally would not exist without you. If you have any feedback for me, my email address is magpie at birdsbeforethestorm.net or you can find me on Twitter at magpiekilljoy. All right. And I want everyone to stay as safe as you can, but be willing to take risks for each other. Just remember that one of the things that one of the risks we can take for each other right now is we can take the risk of isolation. Many of us, many of us can take the the mental health risk that comes with isolation in order to protect ourselves, but especially in order to protect the most vulnerable people in our communities. So please do what you can for yourself and others and Remember what Smokey said in episode, I think, three of this podcast is that most people will survive disasters. It's only the ways of life that might not survive. And we can live without this way of life. It's, I'll say this again and again on this show, it's 
us people who feed people. It's not capitalism that feeds people. It's people growing food and people delivering food that feed people. And we can continue to do that. Thank you.